Amen. Amen. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for your prayers, and uh, we look forward to getting to talk with you guys later on. And uh, thank the rest of you for your, your prayers for praying for me this week. Uh, admittedly, this is a more difficult text than... Uh, Last week, I could preach 10 sermons on the, the, the family of God, something I'm, I'm passionate about. Um, caring for widows is not something that we uh, are as versed in, so it, is, it, it was difficult taking my running commentary that existed yesterday and turning it into a sermon. Um, so it's anything but easy, yet Scripture always has much to teach us. So I want to begin with Psalm 68.5, which says, The Lord is Father of the fatherless protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. This psalm describes a characteristic of God that is throughout all the scriptures. Our God uniquely cares for those who do not or are not able to care for themselves. He is particularly protective and passionate over those who are alone. And he has always directed his people to do so. There are three groups that exist without the scriptures. And you'll see uh, this, this formula repeated throughout the Old Testament especially. Those three groups are the orphans, the widows, and the sojourners. Or those without parents, those without husbands, and those without homes. They are people who are uniquely alone. Without care, without protection, uh, orphans are obvious. Children, they need provision. They need protection. If a child is left on their own, there is not much hope for them unless they are very resourceful. Uh, sojourners are unique in that culture. Um, so there is, there is no immigration for a better life in the ancient Near East. There is no crossing the, the border for job opportunities in healthcare. If you were a sojourner in that day, if you left your people behind, if you left your country, you were also leaving your family, your inheritance, your security, your religion, you were leaving your God to align yourself with, with Yahweh and fall at his mercy. And so this individual was particularly uh, important and protected by the Lord. Because, as Joe was saying a moment ago, in most cultures, if you follow Christ, you are turning your back on everything else and you are dependent on the people of God. And the God that you are, you, you are, you are now committing to serve to provide for you. The third category uh, is what we're going to look at this morning, widows. The word widow in, in Greek comes from the root of forsaken, destitute, alone. Widows apparently were a big issue in Ephesus, as we're going to see. Paul spends the bulk of chapter 5 in dealing with widows, and so we're going to spend uh, two weeks on that. And so why were there so many widows? Why is this such a big issue in Ephesus? So one of the things we need to understand is in the ancient Near Eastern culture, I mean, all throughout uh, the, the, the biblical writings in those days, death and sickness were prevalent, and it was not out of the ordinary for someone to die young or someone to die in their, their, their middle ages. But it's very different because if a wife dies, the husband continues to work. He continues to own property. 
He can, he can marry again or, or not marry again. And his life is relatively unaffected. But if a husband dies, the surviving widow, no one is hiring widows in that culture. She can't go out and start a business. She can't go out and, and come to the uh, town square and talk to the other elders and, uh, and uh, petition them for land or home. If she doesn't have remaining family, if she doesn't have anything left over from her, her dowry, she is completely at the mercy of her, her, her friends, relatives, uh, or the, the community. And so the Lord has always commanded his people to care for them. Um, and so before we get into the rest of this, one of the things I want you to notice, uh, and it's going to help you as we work through this, notice one of these categories is not able-bodied men who are not willing to work. Uh, so as we start getting into talking about mercy ministry and, and benevolence, this is key. The Lord cares for those who, care, who can't care for themselves, not those who won't care for themselves. I want to look at a couple Old Testament pas- passages just to give you an idea. The first one is going to be Deuteronomy 24. Uh, and there are many of these. I could go through a myriad of them. But I want you to see the extent that the Lord goes to to provide for the sojourners, the widows, the orphans. Deuteronomy 24, beginning in verse 17. The Lord commands here, you shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless, either one way or another, or to take a widow's garment and pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. Notice, before we get any further, the way that God's people act toward others is completely reliant on and coming out of how God has treated them. Do this because you were a slave. Do this because I redeemed you. Show mercy because I have shown you mercy. That will uh, come into play for us later on. Verse 19, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, for the fatherless and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat out your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. There's a pattern here. You shall remember you were a slave in the land of Egypt, therefore I command you to do this. He begins and ends with their slavery. Their freedom is a gift of God's grace. And they are to be gracious and merciful to those in their midst who can't provide for themselves. Almost every prophet in the Old Testament repeats this command to care for the orphans, the widows, and the sojourners. I'm just going to look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 7. The Lord here ties the prosperity and the presence of the Lord with their care for the least among them. Jeremiah chapter 7, I'm just going to read 5 through 7. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice uh, one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, uh, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. This is all throughout the Old Testament, but it doesn't stop there. Jesus actually has much to say about widows. Uh, 
probably one of the most central of all is Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 38. I'm setting a lot of ground here because I want you to see how important this is when we get into 1 Timothy. Mark chapter 12, verse 38. And in his teaching he said, Jesus speaking here, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses. How wicked is that? The, woman who, the women who the Lord told you to take care of, who have no one else to care for them, and you go over greedily devouring their houses and for pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Now we don't stop there because Mark intentionally includes these two accounts. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people, putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is one of the highest commendations that Jesus gives in all of the Gospels. And it is to the poor widow with the two mites. On the heels of the condemnation, he gives to the greedy Pharisees and teachers who would eat of everything that they have. I'll leave one more with you and show you how much of a concern this is to Jesus. One of the final things, if you turn to uh, John 19, one of the final things that Jesus says on the cross is concern for his own mother. After this, he says, I thirst. He gets a sour wine. Then he says, it is finished. But right before it is finished, his concern for his own mother, who would ultimately be a believer and a faithful woman in the church. Verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. We don't know if Joseph was still alive. Most scholars think that he wasn't. But what a beautiful picture here. On the cross, Jesus is still not thinking about himself. Son, mother, mother, son, and John, the disciple whom Jesus loves, takes Jesus' own mother into his home and treats her as mother. This is a beautiful picture of what the church does and should do. One more New Testament text. You're already in John. Turn one book over to Acts. Next week, we are going to commission six deacons. Praise the Lord. Um, what was the occasion for the beginning of the diaconal office. What brought this on? We see how much of an issue this was. The church is growing by leaps and bounds in Jerusalem. And in that number, there were many widows. There were Hebrew widows, those who spoke Hebrew, who, 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 who stayed in, in Judea, and then there, there, then there were Hellenistic widows. These were Greek-influenced and Greek-speaking women. 
and there began this, this kind of uh, ethnic separation between the two. Picking up in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows, the Hellenist widows, were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Think about that. That is how important these widows were. You want the, the finest men in the congregation who are not already devoted to teaching and prayer, men full of the Holy Spirit, so that this duty, these women can be cared for and will, will not be neglected in the daily distribution. So, now you can see why this comes on the heels of what we looked at last week. The care for the body of Christ as brothers and sisters, as mothers and fathers, the, the spiritual family of God. None are to be neglected. None are to be forgotten. Spiritual mothers especially in that culture, and in all cultures, but particularly in that culture, are to be honored and cared for and provided for. And as James says in James 1.27, it'll be up on the screen, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep one's, oneself abstained from the world. This is James' whole message. If you truly have faith, your faith will be shown in your works. And if you have been shown mercy and grace of God, you will show mercy and grace to those who need it the most. And so this also requires a lot of discernment. So we're going to work through our passage this morning in 1 Timothy. That was a longer introduction than, than normal, uh, but I think building the foundation is helpful here. So 1 Timothy chapter 5. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a, fa a father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent, is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are gathered here in your name to hallow it, to exalt it, that all of us would look to you, the Lord of creation, truly God, almighty, omnipotent, omniscient, all-knowing, just and powerful, yet merciful and kind and loving and gracious, and we of all 
people should be ministers of your grace and mercy because we too were slaves in Egypt. We too were enslaved to a cruel taskmaster. We were tasked with making bricks without enough straw. And our feeble efforts would never be enough. But you brought us out of our slavery through the blood of the Lamb. You gave us a name and a kingdom and an inheritance. You have set us on a path that ends in Canaan, a heavenly Jerusalem, a new heavens and new earth. God, we are your redeemed people. May we show the same mercy and grace that you have shown us. May we also show discernment and stewardship over the resources you've given us. Uh, Give us wisdom in our decisions. May we not be self-indulgent. May we not live the life of of wicked frivolity, but would we live in joyful obedience to the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, through which we can only do it in the power of your Holy Spirit. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so beginning in verse three, first word here is honor. And so when we speak about honor in, in this context, it does mean honor in the traditional sense. It, it does mean respect, but it also means deserving of financial support. The same idea will be explained when we get to verse 17. Verse 17 says, let the elders who rule well uh, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So this, this, this honor is not just an idea, but also putting their money where their, where, where their mouth is. Um, those who receive uh, and deserve the honor of the saints. And so our, our next two texts are, are essentially parallel. So there's going to be two sermons. This one is discerning family care. The next one will be distributing or, or, or direction for family care. Uh, look at the, uh, the uh, parallel between the two. They both begin with uh, honor widows, enroll widows, who not to honor, who not to enroll, who to avoid, and they both end with this provision before anything else, it begins in the family. That's the, the, the pattern of both texts. Here's, here's the logic of our text this morning, uh, and then by extension, the next text. Real widows are those who are truly alone. So that's how we define a, a, a true widow. Godly widows are those who are truly alone and are faithful. And those who are truly alone and are faithful, they should be provided for. Not pseudo-widows who have other options or who are unfaithful. But before any of that happens, the care must begin in the home. So that's where we're going this morning. And so we'll use this care for widows uh, as a lens through which we see benevolence in the church. So um, benevolence, uh, is the, the root of the word is essentially to, to wish good. It is uh, well, well-wishing put into action. So the, the, the benevolence and the, the mercy ministry of the church, is gonna, we're going to put that through the same grid uh, that is used here for widows. So when Paul says, honor widows that are truly widows, here's the, 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 the primary concern. It's not just saying mother or respecting her as a woman. It, it, is, it is saying, who do you 
honor? Who do you provide for? Who do you give financial support to? This is going to be explained more in verses 5 and 6. Um, so the first question is, are those who you are providing for, do they have any other option? So there is a provision here that the, 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 the church is a safety net for the members of the body, but it's not the, the first option, and there's, there's a, a couple reasons here. So this closely parallels our Wednesday night study. If you've been going through Acts with us, it's been really helpful. And what, what I love about the Acts study is that we're, we're able to interact with, with one another, and that's how it's designed. And we have this conversation about the body having all things in common and people selling lands and selling homes. And we talk about how this is not forced communism, but this is sacrificial, uh, free, voluntary giving, as there are needs. And so... This is not a, a, a vow to poverty for everyone, but if I have two homes and you're living on the street, how could I not care for my brothers and sisters? That is a no-brainer. And so um, these are, are, are closely parallel to one another. And so first thing, honor widows who truly are widows. Now there's a qualifier. Who is not truly a widow? Verse 4. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. Here's the qualifier. If they have family, learn to go to them first. Now, this, this isn't the same in, in our culture because people spurn family for all kinds of different reasons. But as Joe said a moment ago, in an honor and shame culture, it would be the most shameful thing possible if you would not provide for your mother or for your, your, your grandmother. The entire village, your, everyone you, you, you know would, would hold you in dishonor. If you, wouldn't, if you wouldn't care for them. And Paul is saying, if you are a godly woman in the church and you've got surviving family, that is your, your, your first ministry. And there is, a, there is a reciprocal ministry. As you show them godliness, they, they care for your needs. And so the, the word for, for godliness here, uh, it's, it's a godly duty, but it's also tied to the idea of worship. It is religious devotion. And so the, the godliness you, you show them is an act of worship to the Lord. It is, it is obedience that, that, that glorifies God and shows his example to your closest family. And so what we're, what we're seeing here is that there is no distribution without expectation. And probably what happened in Ephesus, they were supporting so many widows, they're probably supporting some who they, they, they shouldn't have. Or they, they shouldn't have to. And so what, what happens, if you just give someone money, you give them a handout, the woman's like, okay, I just get my check every month, and I don't care what happens in my home. But what's, what Paul's saying here is care for your own home first. Godliness is of is first priority, not financial support. And so if there are children, and if there are grandchildren, set your efforts there before you go to the church. And this has two benefits. Here are the, the, the benefits that Paul sets before us. Let them first learn to show godliness to their own household. Two, number one, make some return to their, their parents. By going and investing in her children and grandchildren, she is teaching them to honor her, their, their father and mother. She is teaching them to be obedient. She is teaching them to re return what she's already poured into them. And so she is being blessed by their, their, their care, and they are being blessed by their example. Number two, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. This all pleases the Lord. When a godly woman is in her home with her family exercising godliness, this pleases the Lord. And 
When children honor their, their, their father and mother, when they honor parents and grandparents, this pleases the Lord. And so, this, and, and so Paul's saying, begin in your own home because that is the, the, the greater benefit. Yes, money can help, but money is not the end-all, be-all. Money is not the goal. And this continues our Titus 2 conversation from last week. We talked about the, the, the Titus 2 model for discipleship in the church. Older women discipling the younger and older men discipling the younger men. And my exhortation to women in this body and everybody is, if you have been walking with the Lord for years, you have so much to offer young women. You have so much to testify to the faithfulness of the Lord, to the peace that you have in him, to the comfort that you have found in the scriptures. And so that is a, a ministry that you can do right now. And if you have a scandalous and, and shameful family who won't care for you, then come to the church. So, it's not that this woman should not be honored. She can be a faithful woman, but she's not to be honored monetarily because she has another option. She's not truly a, a, a widow. So this, as Paul's saying, this is more of a, of, of a discipleship opportunity. And, um, and so what we'll do in, in benevolence is often we must do this. Instead of just Instead of just writing a check or instead of just handing money, we ask questions. We, we, we discern what's going on because a lot of times people need financial counseling more than they need finances. Or they need to be reminded of the opportunities for, for ministry and um, the resources that they have at their, at their uh, disposal. So a principle like this, okay, what else is at their disposal? Who, who's, who's in their home? What opportunities for ministry they, they have? So Paul gives us a principle for benevolence. So Paul is cautious first. And once, we're, once we're, we're, we're cautious and we discern the need, then we are generous. And I think if, if we're generous first before being cautious, we can often be, be uh, foolish and not be good, good, good stewards. And if you just think, as, as Westerners, we're so arrogant to think that our money can solve everyone's problems. If I just, if I just cut you a check, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to fix everything. But we may be robbing the family of the blessing of the older woman. We may be robbing the, the, the woman of an opportunity for, for ministry. And so we don't always help financially. We always help spiritually. And so part of that, that, that discernment is asking the, the questions that Paul's asking here. So if there's a widow who is truly a widow, she's going to look like this in verse 5. She who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God. This is something she, she possesses already. She's already done. This is who she is. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. So if this is the widow we should honor, we should camp out here for a minute. So let's, let's stop and kind of work through this. Notice that there are familial and spiritual conditions for supporting a widow financially. In three areas, essentially. Number one, she is left all alone. No family, no dowry. She is destitute. And for most churches, for most of, of history, and many churches around the world, this is an issue. This is part of daily ministry. Because if you have a lot of sickness, if you don't have great health care, uh, if if um, for any myriad of reasons you have many widows, 
we don't here. But if we did, ministry would look much different. And it is a, it is a, worthwhile, it is a worthwhile effort. So number one, they're left all alone. And so this is descriptive of what's going on in Ephesus. We talked about this on Wednesday. The difference between descriptive text and prescriptive text. So we can prescribe what the church must do in principle out of this, but this is describing a situation that is unique and and particular to Ephesus. And as I was thinking about this and um, talking to someone yesterday who wouldn't let me use his name, but he said that, man, as, as I think about that, how alone we are in and of ourselves, in, in our, our culture. Like how many people feel all alone in a crowd of people? How many people are connected in more ways than they ever have been yet feel like they have no one who knows them? No one who, who cares. And coming out of our, our uh, sermon last week on adoption, how vital it is that you were part of the family of God, that you are united in, in Christ. Because how many people do you know who put on such a front on, on uh, social media who try to tell you all the great things they do and they go home and cry because they are miserable because no one knows them, no one loves them. We are the most connected we have ever been and we are the most disconnected relationally we have ever been. But... The family of Christ brings us together. And there is a fellowship and there is a unity and there is a belonging that Paul is, is encouraging here because they feel and, and uh, we feel. And that begins with the heart of the woman. It's she is left alone, but you don't honor her only because she's alone. You honor her because she has set her hope on God. The same language is is applied to Paul and Timothy in chapter 4, verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. That is the main prerequisite. Her hope is not in you. Her hope is is not that that your money will solve all her problems. She trusts in the true and living God, the same way Paul does, the same way Timothy does. This is our sister. This is our mother in in the faith. She is to be commended because she knows even if you hand over the finances, the provision does not come from you. It comes from the Lord. And he is, is her hope. She's not some lackluster, nominal Christian. This is a great litmus test for benevolence. Do they hope in the living God? Do they trust him? Do they look to him as their savior and as their hope and as their their, their comfort or are they looking to you? I think many people give because they like to feel like they are the savior. And I think this is important here, that the church is not bound to care for the whole world. We'll get to this more in, in a few moments. So she's left all alone. She, her hope, her heart is directed to the Lord. And number three, she continues. This is an ongoing practice of her life. Whether you address her issues or not, whether the church helps her or not, she continues in supplications and prayers. Supplications are intercessions, prayers on behalf of others. 
This woman, who is all alone, who has nothing else, is not thinking about herself. She is thinking about her fellow brothers and sisters. She is lifting up the saints continually, day and night. That is a godly widow. She offers up the supplications for the saints and prayers for herself. She is crying out to God because she has nowhere else to go and she doesn't want to go anywhere else. There's a beautiful example of this in Luke 2. Luke 2, who is Anna the, the prophetess. She is this godly widow to a T. This is Luke chapter 2, verse 36. So notice where this is. This is after the, right after the birth narrative, Jesus is presented in the temple. A couple of aged saints witness the Christ child. But look at this woman, Anna. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phenuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she, uh, when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. See how the Lord honored this faithful widow? She got to see the Christ before she died. She got to look upon Jesus, God incarnate. She devoted herself to the Lord in the temple and he honored her. And she praised God and she told everyone who came by, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for is here. God has brought the Savior to us. And he used an 84-year-old woman to do it. That is what our God does. He uses the least, the, the, the unlikely, to the praise of his glory. And what a beautiful picture of the gospel. Those who devote themselves to the Lord, they will see Christ. They will see him face to face, and they will rejoice as Anna rejoiced. This is the type of woman we honor and encourage in the church. So, the church does have an obligation to support and encourage those who are truly alone. Those who are in our midst. And we do often have the equivalent of widows and orphans and sojourners. But I want to talk about this a little bit because when we think about benevolence, when we think about caring for those in the body, there are errors on two extreme sides, as there often are. If you've ever driven in, in the country on those, those uh, skinny one-lane roads with a ditch on either side, it is very easy to run off into one side or the other. Um, one of the books that's been really helpful for me in this is uh, When Helping Hurts, and I forgot it at home. I didn't, I didn't bring it. But I want to explain a, a principle that they talk about there, and this is really helpful. So one error, one ditch on one side is some would coldly say, we in the church are here to worship. We are we are here to worship the glory of the living God, and that is absolutely true. But that's our only duty, and we forget our responsibility to care for those who can't be cared for. They describe that as 
the king without the kingdom. That is no benevolence within the church. We worship the king of heaven and forget that the king of heaven is father of the fatherless and protector of widows, is God and his holy habitation. I know these churches who will send away the weak and the poor and the needy because they get in the way of their proper worship. This says we worship the king, but we do not care for those in his kingdom. There's an error on the other side. They think that the church only exists to care for all of the poor without any expectation of of worship. That we give indiscriminately to anyone and anywhere and don't call them to faith in Christ Jesus. We don't call them to exalt the king. This is kingdom without the king. Either way is a false view of benevolence. We are worshipers who through our worship care for those who the Lord has given us who worship alongside of us. And so we must worship the king and serve his kingdom together. I thought that was a really helpful picture of having no benevolence or all benevolence without worship. So that's what the church should do. Here's what the church should watch out for as we transition into verse 6. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. This is harsh language, but it needs to be said. So we've got two, uh, two categories so far. We've got the widow who should be honored financially and the uh, widow who could be honored spiritually, but she doesn't need the financial help. Here's the third one. Here's the shameful widow who should be avoided. Self-indulgent. She is the one who lives a life of luxury and self-excess. Her entire world surrounds around her. Uh, There's an early Christian document called the Epistle of Barnabas. Uh, probably one of the oldest letters we have in the church. It was written late first century, early second century. And in that, the same word for self-indulgence, he calls those in the church uh, swine. And here's the, uh, the uh, picture he uses. Just like a pig who wants nothing to do with his master until, he, and, until he's hungry, and then he squeals for the master to feed him. And as soon as, he fed, as soon as he's fed, he ignores the master again and goes and lays in the corner. This is the self-indulgent person who only cries out, who only wants their owner, who only looks to the Lord when they need something. And as soon as they get what they want, they're back to dealing with themselves. James describes this in James chapter 5, verse 5. Same word. This is a very rare word. This is the only two times it's used in the New Testament. James chapter 5, verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You are waddling around the the congregation like, like spoiled pigs, and you expect everyone else to fund your excesses. So think about that. Imagine someone living for her own pleasure living for herself and expecting the same care and concern as the godly widow who prays night and day, who offers up supplications for the church and who who, who serves her brothers and sisters. This is why we show discernment. Can you imagine giving the self-indulgent woman the same treatment and care as the godly woman? 
But how many people squander their lives, go and blow everything that they have, and then show up in the church and say, you have to provide for me. This happens all the time, especially here. They want the church to supplement their own indulgence. This is why we don't give money to everyone. Because we take seriously the investments and the finances and the treasures of the saints. We offer discernment. We will help. And when we help, we are generous. But we are cautious. And we recognize that not everyone should be helped financially. As I said earlier, money does not solve anyone's problems. The ultimate problems. If you trust in the Lord, money puts food on your table, great. But if you think by having money, it's going to solve your, your spiritual problems, you are sadly mistaken. I think so many churches do that. And that the, the book, When Helping Hurts, and I'll bring more quotes next time. Um, but what they talk about often is, very often, when you don't use discernment, you're just enabling them. And you make the situation worse. And they look to money as, as salvation instead of looking to the Lord. But if a faithful member can't pay their bills, if a faithful member struggles, we give without a, without a hesitation, without a second thought. And so remember, we're only talking about spiritual support here, uh, or excuse me, financial support. Spiritual support, we always give, even to the unfaithful, even to the self-indulgent. We will have a very hard, direct conversation about what they do with their, their finances and their, their time, especially those who say, hey, I need help, but are not a part of the body and won't serve the church. Paul has very strong language for those self-indulgent. He says, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Man, that is harsh language, but it's true. John Stott says this, for one kind of life, self-indulgence in reality is spiritual death. While another, well, one kind of death, self-denial, really is spiritual life. Here's the gospel. You either die with Christ and live with him forever, or you live for yourself and you're dead where you stand. This is what Paul is saying. If you think life is all about living for you and fulfilling your own desires, you are dead. This life is much more than clothing and food. Your father knows you and cares for you. You don't think the Lord will provide for you? He's the father to the fatherless. Husband to the widow. But how often do we just, it is, it is easier to give a check. It is easier to give money and just hope that the person figures it out. But every time we, we, we have done that, and I know Jesse's going to nod his head very adamantly back there, they come back again a week later and a month later because the money doesn't solve the problem. If you are dead, you need the gospel. If you are living in your, your own strength, in your own self-indulgence, you need, to, you need to be born again. You don't need your, 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 your budget balanced. And even in some of those instances, we will, we will help people. But normally, here's a good litmus test. I did this when I, when I, when I first got here. Um, when I first got here, there was a feeding program where every Monday night, they would open the doors, and uh, anywhere from 
10 to 30, people would come in to get a free meal. 99% of them were uh, single, able-bodied men who usually stumbled in here. In every instance, when they would ask me, I need socks, I need money for this, I need money for this. So you know what? It was a Monday night. I would tell them, come to service on, on, on Sunday. And after service, I'll help you with whatever you need. I did this for six months. Anyone want to guess how many showed up on Sunday? Zero. I was not, the little finances we had, the little people we had, I was not going to give the church finances to those who were self-indulgent and who just used our meal so that they could go drink their, their uh, income afterward. So just on soapbox for a moment. But we have to think through these things. We don't encourage those who are living for themselves. We're not doing them any favors. We're actually making them more comfortable on their way to hell. So that's why Paul says in strong language, verse 7, command these things as well. We looked at this early on in, in uh, chapter 1. This is, this is military language. I am giving you an order for the church. Command these things. Why do we command these things? Why do we teach discernment? Why do we make a d- distinction between one widow and another? We're not showing partiality. We're making distinction. We're showing discernment so that they may be without reproach. Everything in the letter of 1 Timothy is so that the church would be without reproach. It's so that the, the saints would be unified, they'd be faithful to the Lord, and they have a great witness to those outside of them. Imagine the wisdom of a church that cares for widows well, that disciples them, that, 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 that trains them to care for their, their, their families, and they're this, this beautiful, unified body. We want to make sure that you are not under reproach for how you're handling these things. And so Timothy must model and teach how the church is to steward its members and use its resources. And so elders, we have the responsibility, every pastor of every church is is given the same apostolic imperative to instruct, to model, to lead in discerning the needs and expectations of the members. That is a that is a weight. That is a high calling, and we, we, we don't take that lightly. When you give tithes and offerings, we take that seriously. Now, this is given unto the Lord and to the work of, of the, the Lord. And I'm glad when these situations come in, our deacons as well are having these conversations, are asking the, these, these questions. We sit down with people, and we talk about what is going on. These are church principles, just like we discussed in Acts 4 on Wednesday. These are ecclesiastical principles, not civil. It also needs to be said, we are failing as the church to show the love of God if we assume that the state is going to care for the needs in the body. So we have to show discretion, but we also don't show apathy and fall off the ditch on the other side and say, well, the government's going to do that, and so we don't have to as the church. We are... We are ministers of the gospel. We are ministers of this gospel of reconciliation. Our God is gracious and merciful, and we should be. And for the members of our our body, if I have to sell my house, if I have to sell my car, the Lord will give me another house and another car. 
But here's the last verse and the final principle that undergirds everything else. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This is the hardest language of the entire section. This is paralleled in verse 16, which says essentially the same thing. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Notice that the family is still governed by the fifth commandment. Honor father and mother. And if you don't, you need to check your your Christian card. The household of God begins in our own households first. This is a very important principle. This is why we spent so much time on this in chapter 3. The qualification for both elder and deacon. Look at chapter 3, verse 4. An elder must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he care for God's church? A deacon, likewise, verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. It begins in our homes. And notice all the pronouns here are masculine. The emphasis is in the heads of households. Men, it is our responsibility to care for those in our household, to provide for those the Lord has entrusted us with. And as we mentioned from James earlier, our faith will be seen in our works. It will be seen in our care for those in our home. And so when he says... If anyone does not provide, every single person falls into this. And it's especially true in that day. There's no social security. There's no social services. There's no retirement homes in in those days. We have so many more options for, for the elderly. But it doesn't mean that we just abdicate our duty to care for them, to love them, to minister to them, to build them up. There's an old Dutch proverb that I think rings true here. It says, It is often easier for one poor father to raise ten children than for ten rich children to care for one poor father. It is often easier for one poor father to raise ten children than for ten rich children to care for one poor father. And if you can't even care for those in your household... If your mother or father or your wife's mother or father is not eating, you have denied the faith. You missed the whole point. You're worse than an unbeliever. This is so basic, even pagans get this. God has so built this into those made in his image. He so cares for for widows. Even atheists love their own parents. If we can't lead in that, if we can't do something as, as, as basic as caring for our own family, the gospel you believe is useless because it doesn't even begin in your own home. But we have the grace of Christ in salvation. He has been so merciful and patient with us. He walks with us 
when we can't care for ourselves. We're making a mess of ourselves. And so we can easily care for others. Uh, The end of Galatians has a lot of these exhortations. We can look at a couple. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. How do we fulfill the law of Christ? How are we faithful? Those who are in Christ, we bear the burdens with one another and we don't have to look any further than those in our own household. He goes on later in verse nine, and let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. It's not that, and don't, don't hear me saying, not that we can't help anyone outside of the church. I'm not saying that at all. But our responsibility is first and foremost our own household and the household of faith. If the Lord gives abundantly beyond that, we have opportunity beyond that, praise the Lord. But Paul is talking about specifically what do you use church resources for? So all believers have this responsibility in our own homes, and the church should always care for the least of these Our brothers, is the direct quote from Jesus. So, do we show godliness to our own relatives? Are we a godly example to those in our homes and those in our families? Do they see see us as people who honor fathers and mothers? Do they see us who out of worship, love and serve and care for those who the Lord has entrusted in us? Or we... Are we terrible witnesses for this? Do we think so much of ourselves that our families are a wreck and we can't care for and serve others? Are we living for ourselves? What kind of witness? Are we above reproach in the way that we deal with our own families, let alone the church? And by extension, do we show love and concern and service and support for our brothers and sisters? Does the way that we treat one another in the church, especially those who can't provide for themselves, does that make the world around us want to know our God who would drive us to be so merciful and gracious because he's first been merciful and gracious to us? The heart of our mercy ministry comes from the mercy we have already received. So in conclusion, I want you to consider a couple things. Number one, if you are here this morning and you are feeling alone and you are feeling hopeless, if you look at this and you feel like the forsaken widow, if you feel like I have no one to go to, I have no hope, look to the Redeemer. Look to the one who delivered his people from Egypt. Look to the one who delivered us from our sins because the one who made you He is your husband. Jesus Christ will restore you and secure you forever. Turn from your self-indulgence. You cannot serve him and yourself. If you are living for yourself, what do you think will happen when your life is taken from you? What will you have if everything in your life is about you and just trying to hold on what little you have, that too will be taken from you. Your self-indulgence only leads to death. But I want you to know, if you are here this morning, this is the family of God. 
And if you put your trust in him, you are our brother and sister, and you are not alone, and you will never be alone. So why do Christians care for widows, orphans, and sojourners? Because apart from Christ, we know what it means to be alone. Apart from Christ, we know what it means to not have a home, to not have a husband, to not have family, to not have parents. We know what it means to have no hope and no provision. We know that we are hopeless and dead in our sin. We know that when we die, we have nothing to stand on but our own filthy rags. We die with nothing. We know that we are the self-indulgent widow that no one wanted. But our God is gracious and merciful. He redeemed us by the blood of the Lamb. He adopted us into his family. He turned us from this wicked widow into a pure, beautiful bride. He's given us an inheritance as sons. He's been merciful to our sins. He's been gracious in all of our stumbling. Sandra, it's great to have you back. We love you. (laughs) He has removed our rags and given us a garment of righteousness. That is why we are gracious. That is why we love the unlovable. This truly is amazing grace. So 250 years ago, last week, John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. He preached a sermon, January 1st, 1773, on 1 Chronicles 17, 16 and 17. So if you don't know John Newton's story, the very abridged version, he spent most of his adolescence at sea as a slave trader, making a lot of money from the selling of human beings. And God redeems him out of that. And in preaching this sermon, he is overcome with God's grace toward him. Here's what he says. Or here's what he's reading from the beginning of David's prayer. Then King David went in and sat sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? If you have ever said, Who am I, O Lord God, you know amazing grace. And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Because John Newton knew that if he was redeemed and he was faithful in his own home, the Lord would redeem more in his family. And there would be a legacy in his family. And this was a small thing in your eyes, O God. Who is man that you were mindful of him? You don't have to care for me. It's such a small thing. But it's such a great thing for me. You have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. And have shown me future generations, O Lord God. I love that picture. When you know the amazing grace of being alive in Christ and dead to your sin, you know that the good news that is on my lips is going to affect generations because I will not stop telling of the amazing grace. And he preaches this sermon out of gratitude of his salvation, from going from a slave trader to a slave of Christ. Uh, Just side note, you know what I thought was interesting when I I was reading this? You could only sing approved hymns in churches those days. Some things don't change. Amazing grace could only be sung outside for years until it was approved by the Church of England. Think about that. 
The hymns that we revere now, and some of you get into these debates about which songs to be sung, Amazing Grace had to be sung in the field because it, it wasn't approved. Now it's the standard. Uh, the closest estimation is that it is, it is sang over 10 million times a year, if not more. But this slave trader, this widow of wickedness, becomes a bride and a beloved son of God. And if you are in Christ, so are we. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. We praise you. Forgive us when we fail to praise you. Forgive us when we fail to see your grace is amazing. Forgive us when we stand in our own righteousness. Forgive us when we, for, when we forget your mercy toward us. Forgive us when we fail to show mercy. Forgive us when we don't put our hope in you. Forgive us when we fail to pray for one another, to praise you, to go before your throne. Lord, I am thankful to be in a family, a body of godly men and women who know your grace, who love one another, who serve one another, and who proclaim that grace. May your name ever be on our lips. May we never hesitate to talk about our God and our salvation. Our God is the God who redeems the lost, who covers those who are orphans and widows and sojourners who have no home, no parents, no family, no husband, calls them sons, makes them a beautiful bride and his people forevermore. We praise you, God. You are the redeemer. May the redeemed of the earth say so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.